Our scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 42 and 43. We're be going to be reading both Psalms. So if you have a copy of God, uh, God's Word, open up to Psalm 42 and 43. It's kind of at the beginning of the Psalter. If you have a copy of the Black Church Bible, that's page 439. As I'm reading, I will start in 42, verse 1, and I'll just read right through to the end of Psalm 43. I won't pause in the middle or stop in the middle, so you can just do your best to track along. Psalm 42, beginning with verse 1. This is what Holy Scripture says. To the choir master, a mascal of the sons of Korah. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I could go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon and from Mount Mezer. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people from the deceitful and unjust man. Deliver me, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God. To God, my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So according to the Canadian Mental Health Association, in any given year, basically one in five people will personally experience a mental health or illness problem. They say by the time you're 40, about half of Canadians will experience mental illness, which is different than mental health decline. Illness is something a bit more serious. Now, I don't know exactly how they came to those numbers, but they at least represent something that most of us kind of intuitively know, 
that almost everyone that you've encountered in life and yourself go through periods of sadness or maybe minor bouts of depression or whatever it is, we're going to encounter something that will feel deep inside of us. There'll be a deep sadness or grief or loss. I was having, I was just with some couple friends yesterday and we were talking a little bit about this in our lives too. It just seems regular and part of the human experience that you will experience times of being downcast, having a soul that just feels heavy and bears you down. It's just part of what it means to be human. I'm sure there's going to be the one exception in here who's like, I'm 84, I've never been sad a day in my life, but for the most of us mere mortals, this will be part of our experience. It's just what it is. Sometimes you'll be in a stage of life where you have like 17 kids and everything is overwhelming and crashing upon you. You're going to get there soon, don't worry, Patrick. And uh, you, you just, it's not that you're necessarily sad, it's just everything is too much for you. It's like breakers smashing you over and over and over. Well, this psalm actually has a lot to say, not about every single circumstance whatsoever, but about that general malaise, that uneasiness that we all sort of feel in life from time to time. In this, in, well, in this psalm, in the two psalms, you basically have this kind of pattern. The psalmist, he doubts himself. He's um, accused of certain things or people kind of mock him and he believes them, and that doubt kind of turns into despair. And he holds despair kind of in this fist up here, his left hand. And at the same time, he hopes in God, which doesn't, interestingly enough, make this despair completely disappear, because the psalm ends with the same type of question. The psalm ends, why, my soul, are you so dejected in turmoil? Why are you so downcast? But it also ends with hope. So one of the things I want to show you today from this psalm is that our general sense of malaise, our general sense of uneasiness that we sometimes experience may not be something that is possible to completely eliminate in this life, nor something that you should necessarily try to eradicate. But listen to the whole thing before you judge exactly what I mean by that, because some of you might be thinking, well, that's silly read with me a little bit and, and see if I can get you there to show you what this maybe looks like from this psalm in particular. So how does this work in this psalm? I, I'm going to give you like just kind of two, like three ways to outline it. Um, depending on the kind of personality you are, you might like that. If that's not you, okay. So first, he basically turns inward to himself and tries to understand like what is going on in his soul and, and basically rebukes himself. And then he secondly looks to the outward terrible power of nature and says, God controls that. Wow. Like compared to me, like this is huge. And third, he hopes for God, the God of his salvation. Another way to talk about it is he moves inward to see himself, outward to, to nature and to her creator, which is our God, and then finally upward to God in hope. And if you want the third one, which is, is in your bulletin, I think, when you experience disappointment, self-doubt, and despair, Psalms 42 and 43 tell you what you need to know. You need to know your God, or you need to know yourself, you need to know your God, and you need to know your Savior. All right, so you have multiple ways to outline this, so we'll see if any of those are helpful to you. Know yourself. Psalms, Psalm 42, roughly verses 1 through 6. But if, if you ever read a psalm, they often repeat themselves, so it's roughly verses 1 through 6. 
So in ancient Greece, there was this kind of maxim. You've probably heard it before, maybe in a movie or like, I don't know, some 18-year-old some working on YouTube says it out loud and wants you to join his workout program. You have to know yourself. It's a, it's a maxim. It's this idea that you need to know your constitution, your body, your soul, your limits, your strengths, your weaknesses. And yes, it is kind of a general thing that people talk about, but this also has, there, there's, there's also something deeply biblical about this. There's something that is really important that we need to know who we are, what our limits are, and what our strengths are. In fact, a pastor and theologian by the name of John Calvin, like 500 years ago, opened up one, his famous book this way. He said, our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of two parts, knowledge of God and knowledge of self. So there you go. Even John Calvin says that Psalms 42 and 43 are biblical. That was a joke. Because in Psalms 42 and 43, you see the psalmist looking deep within his soul to understand what is, trying to figure out what is going on, and then he reverberates from his soul straight up to God. That's wisdom. No self, no God. It's narcissism if you just say, I know myself and I'm going to stop there. It's unrealistic if you're, you know, pie in the sky, you only think about God, but you forget that you're a real person. It's both of those things. That's why you have to have good theology and good practice. You have to say that God is love, but then you actually have to love someone else. You can't say God is love and then like take away like the uh, lollipop from a little kid. <laughs> Start eating it yourself. God is love. Give me that lollipop. Mm. Like it doesn't work, right? It's so patently obvious. You have to know yourself, know people, know this world, but also know God. It's both ends. Now most people read these two Psalms, Psalms 42 and 43, almost like they're one Psalm because they repeat a lot of the same words. They sound really similar. Some people think they're originally one. The point is, I don't know exactly all its history, but the point is that these psalms seem to fit together. Psalm 42 is more like the inward turn, and Psalm 43 is more the outward turn towards God, or upward turn. Um, there's lots more that could be said about that, but I'll move on. I'll just give you the basic context, and that is very little. You don't know too much about these psalms. It looks like whoever the psalmist is, is no longer allowed in Jerusalem. He can't go to God's holy hill. It's very possible that he's in the land of Jordan near Mount Hermon because he speaks about that, I think in verse 6 of chapter 42. That's sort of an educated guess on the things that he says. But really, the only kind of context you know is basically that this person is uh, unable to go to Jerusalem to worship at God's holy hill, his temple. He doesn't like that, and there are people and himself, there are people who are, who are mocking him, and he feels really like he's in deep despair about this. He's basically separated from the face of God, the place of worship. That's the context. But that's okay. Um, ultimately, Christians have always believed that God is the primary author of, of Scripture. And the Psalms, as one really, 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 really old pastor said, named Augustine, um, the Psalms are given by the Holy Spirit to help us to work out our kind of twisted up inner life. The Holy Spirit gives you divine words to lament, complain, grieve, celebrate, have joy, be sad in a Christian way. And then to use those words and speak them back to God. And as you notice, even in this psalm and in many psalms, you, you see things in there and you're like, I don't think I want to say that even though I feel that. 
but they're given to you so that you can say the hard things, but not stop there, but you couldn't get you kind of untwist all the things that bunch up, all the stress that's in you, and you're often moved towards an end of praise. That's how the Psalms work. They, not all of them, often they begin with a lament, grief, complaint, and they end sort of in, pra- in praise or some sort of conclusion like that. You see a pattern like this. From another really, 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 really old pastor from Athanasius all the way up to Calvin in the 1500s and probably beyond, the Psalms have been viewed as a, a mirror to the soul, They've been viewed as a mirror to the soul, meaning that you look at them and you kind of see yourself. They're like the prayer book of the church. You see, I, you see the people complain and grieve and sometimes accuse and argue with God, and you're like, I kind of feel like I want to say things like that. That's what the Psalms are given to you for. They're given to you by the Holy Spirit to work things out. They're sort of a unique book in Scripture for that reason. And we can kind of see this already in this psalm. Like, just look how it begins, verse 1 of Psalm 42. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. I mean, this panting of the deer is just, it describes how badly the psalmist thirsts for God's presence again, which is going to include all that celebration that he has in Jerusalem, the presence of God, the feeling of joy, the affirmations of brothers and sisters in the faith, but he is somehow isolated and away from all of that, and in fact, people say, where's your God? They're kind of mocking him. He sees himself like a deer panting for fresh water. Verse 2, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? This whole idea of thirst, again, goes back to water. Living God does too, because living water is like, the, it's like water in a stream. So living God is kind of a description of God that reminds you of fresh water. He's thirsty. He wants to see God. He wants to see the living God who gives him waters, uh, uh, living waters. Verse 3, here's what he gets instead. My tears have been my food day and night. Well, they say to me all day, where is your God? Tears are his food. He thirsts for water, but he only gets food, but he gets tears. And what's in tears? Salt. And what happens when you drink salt? Thirstier. His tears are his food, and they make him thirstier for God. They don't satiate him at all. It's the opposite. He is at the lowest of the lows. I don't know what we would call this today with all our fancy terms, but he is downcast. (laughs) He is... Sad. He is worried. Whatever it is, I, I don't know the right terms because we have too many words today, but whatever it is, he is, he has a downcast soul. Let's just use his words. He looks to himself, and fascinatingly enough, he's describing himself by the things he sees in nature. Stream, deer, living God, like living water. Tears are like food that I'm eating. They're like my bread. And something unusual happens. His tears talk. His tears seem to say in verse 3, where is your God? Now I admit, some translation, it's a little bit ambiguous, so some translations just assume, okay, someone must be saying this. So either it's his tears that are talking or someone just saying this. It's, but it's the same result. He is weeping and crying and all that he hears is, where is your God? Why do you feel abandoned, alone? There's accusers, there's mockers. Possibly his own tears are just a reminder of where he is in life and not where he wants to be. He's somehow in exile. 
He wants to know, where's my help? Where, where's God? Like, all these promises of God in the Bible, like I read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they all have these great promises, but where are they? Why isn't God being God is kind of the thing that he's thinking of. Later on, he'll say, I took refu- I'm, I'm taking refuge in you. Why are you not refuging me? Which, I don't know if that's a word, but it just kind of came out. Ellen Chari is a commenter and theologian. She says, calls this mocking. It says, being mocked seeps into the soul and breeds self-doubt. You know how this works. Just when you're younger, if someone says, you're bad at you know, basketball or whatever, you, you begin to believe it. You, be, you begin to believe the bad press. As you're older, it's like, uh, you're, you know, you're, you're a bad parent because your house is dirty or whatever it is. You just have all these kinds of narratives that people say to you, and you begin to believe it. You, be, you begin to believe the bad press, and it kind of roots into you, and it almost physically hurts. That's the kind of thing that he's getting at. She continues, Chari, that the speaker is constantly plagued by asking himself where God is, for self-doubt is more unnerving than the sneer of adversaries, the sneer of adversaries, although being sneered at will surely affect tender souls adversely. What makes things worse is that he remembers the past when he was praising God in the temple in verse 4. He was praising God there. It was was just a wonderful time. But that contrast, you find out in verses 5 and the beginning of 6, really doesn't help him too much because it actually almost makes it worse because he says, back then, I was in the temple. I was cheering on God. I was worshiping him with lyre and all these wonderful things. People were around me. It was the greatest ever. And then I was isolated, away from it all. At one level, you probably had a minor uh, analogy to this when we had those, those lockdowns, which seems like a million years ago. And you were sort of on your own, at least for a few weeks at a time. It's that kind of feeling, but more than that, he was being mocked and he was basically exiled and unable to return. See, it's not so much the criticism that gets under our nerves. Like, if someone like, random that you don't know says something critical, it almost okay, doesn't so much matter. But if you start believing, if it's something you really, really care about and you believe the press, then those things get deep into your bones and they make you feel bad. This is probably why I would imagine married couples can often hurt each other much more than other people because you're like so close to one another that you know how to criticize well. And when those criticisms come, they can dig deep into you. It's also why I think parents in particular can use too harsh of words with their children and hurt them because they're so close and those words can cut deep and cause almost physical pain. And we often will turn to despair at those moments. And this is what it might mean at this moment, how you could know yourself. Look at verses 5 and I guess the beginning of 6. Here's an honest question the psalmist asks. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him my salvation and my God. See, ask his own soul a question. Have you, ever, have you ever had this experience where you're like, I feel mad or sad, and then you're like, I don't know why. I imagine almost everyone has. You often feel ways you don't fully understand it. He's asking himself. He's trying to figure it out. He's like, come on, soul. What's going on in here? Give me some answers. 
But then he gives his own soul some tough talk. He gives it a command, hope in God. It's a command, you've got to hope. And then he gives a reason for that hope, which is so fascinating. He's reasoning with himself. He says, a command, you need to hope in God. And then he says, but here's why you're going to hope in God. Because I know, for I know, for, it's a reason, I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Calling him my salvation implies that God will save him. So he commands the soul, hope in God, and explains why. And this is where we need to get into the second point of the outline, knowing your God. So the, the psalmist turns inward, uh, he despairs, he's believing his mockers, there's some self-doubt involved. But he knows that something is wrong here. He knows this isn't like the best thing to, to be thinking like. So he, so he actually then... Um, commands himself to hope in God. He knows the right thing. He gives reasons for it. He wants to know the God of his salvation. But it's fascinating. The psalmist doesn't just abstractly think about God. Like, you could say, okay, I, I know that I'm thinking badly and feeling badly, therefore I need to just know God. In the abstract, that's, that's not how this works. There's, there's real, tangible God stuff here. So, uh, the end of verse 6 and verse 7, he's, he starts talking about how he understands God. He says, look, or, or the, the, God, the creation that God created. He says, from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar, which is just a small mountain, deep calls to deep, at the roar of your waterfalls, all of your breakers and your waves have gone over me. See, here he continues the water, ver- the water imagery from the prior verses, you know, panting after water like a deer, the living God, tears as food. But now he looks to the mountains and to the depths. This is where maybe he tells us that he's in this area of Jordan and Mount Hermon, possibly. It's not certain, but he mentions those places. But he at least points to a very, very high place and a very, very low place, the depths, right? And the high place. Mount Hermon's a huge mountain. I think probably at this time it might have been the highest mountain in Israel, or at least one of the highest. And the depths are really interesting because in the ancient world, I mean, depths are these kind of primordial, mysterious, deep things that you don't know too much about. Like if you think about deep space today, did anyone look at those James Webb photos of NASA recently? Probably some of you did. It's like this deep, unending space. It's mysterious and seems infinite. It's sort of like the depths of the water. It's like the, the, the furthest, deepest place possible Then Mount Hermon would be like this highest place possible. So what he's doing is just showing this grandeur of creation. And then he says that the roar of your waterfalls, which is God's waterfalls, and then he says, your breakers and your waves have gone over me. (coughs) Meaning, this is God's power in creation. The wonder of creation is because God is the creator. And the water and tears, the stream, the tears, all that he had, everything gets flooded over, breakers crash over him. A waterfall falls upon him. In other words, his feelings of despair, all of these things that he, he's, uh, that he feels inside, the moment he turns outside, he goes, whoa. Things are huge and mysterious and great and powerful, and God is behind that. But this terrible power does not destroy him. Bring him into deeper despair, Look what he says in verse 8 of Psalm 42. He says, look, by day the Lord commands his steadfast love, 
and at night his song is with me. Prayer to the God in my life. He's, he's eating his tears day and night, but here, God's love comes to him night and day, and God is his life. And here is probably where the psalm begins to feel a little bit more realistic to our experience. If it just stopped here, we might say, hey, you feel bad? Trust God. Period. Okay, have a good day. You know, like, well, that might not be the most helpful way to do it. See, he, tr- he, d- he trusts God, and he's trying to overcome his feelings by looking outward, not just being kind of a narcissist and, and just exclusively focusing on his self, not just only his problems. He looks outward and says, in, a, in, in the right way, my, my experience of suffering is, is relative to the massive universe that God has created. But he's conflicted. Look at verses 9 and 10. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go on mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy. As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? Uh, Years ago, an author um, by the name of Nancy Guthrie, do you know know that name? She she had lost a couple, uh, uh, two young children. There was a news article that I I think yesterday I saw, and she said, I just had to feel it, and it hurt physically. So if anyone has suffered loss, greater or lesser, you know that, that this pain can hurt you. And this is what he's getting at. It's like a deadly wound in my bones. When something terrible happens to you or to others whom you love, you feel it like, like I had uh, my daughter when she was three, like broke her leg. I think it was worse for me than for her. You know, like I felt terrible, <clears throat> worried, guilty, all these sorts of things. We often, this is the way that often pain comes to us. It's this connection between mind and body. Your, your tears speak. They say something. His separation from God, the psalm's separation from God, his mocking enemies, his own self-doubt, all this pains him, even though he knows God's great power over nature. He knows depth to depth, highest mountain, waterfalls, breakers. If you've ever been to an ocean, you've seen like a, a breaker or a wave come, they're like massive and dangerous and powerful. Like this is God's work. He is behind it all. And so whatever his particular problem is, the psalmist's problem, he knows that God is more powerful. What's the cheesy way to say it? Is it VeggieTales, God is bigger than your problems? You see... Oh, then he ends Psalm 42 by saying, again, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. My salvation and my God. Okay, here's where things are interesting. Because you see, we we all try to, whenever we have this sort of experience, and of course, he might have it in an extreme way, we might have it in a minor way or even a greater way. We often try to medicate eradicate or ignore any kind of feeling of unease or uncertainty or uncomfort. Uncomfort? Hmm. I don't know if that's a word. Uncomfortable. Okay, it is. Yeah, okay. (laughs) But you see, he's actually caught between these two, the power of God, his trust in God, and this despair. And the thing that it lies in between those is hope. Because what is hope? Like, by definition, what is hope? Is hope something that's already realized? Is hope something that you have now, or is it? It's in the future. It's something you don't yet have. Hope is something that you're hoping for. <laughs> like, I hope it's a good year. It means it hasn't been a good year yet. 
Both are real. His experience of suffering is real. That's not denied in this psalm. God's power is equally real. That's not denied either. But it's really hope that kind of cuts between these two, that kind of checks and challenges this despair and keeps it kind of in its place. It doesn't say it's, it's all gone forever because he's genuinely exiled from Jerusalem, possibly in the Mount Hermon area. It's not like he just ignores all of his problems. They're checked and challenged. See, this hope is concrete. And look what happens in verses 1 to 2 of Psalm 43. This is probably where we might feel uncomfortable. He goes on and says, look, vindicate me, O God. Defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? You hear what he's saying here? He's saying, God, be God. He's, I take refuge in you. You said, if I took refuge under your wings, you'd carry me like an eagle. Where are you? Vindicate me, which is like another word to say, it's like justify me. Show, show everyone that I'm in the right. Bring me back to Jerusalem. I want to see you again. Why? He explains, for because you are the God whom I take refuge. Why am I still mourning when you're God? I know about your breakers, your waterfalls, your power, your covenant, your promises. So be like God ought to be. He, he argues with God. It's fascinating. Now, insofar as he's arguing with God, he's not doing it in like a... I would say, like a cruel or unkind way. He's just saying, you promised this. Fulfill what you said you were going to do. It's more of like, we have a covenant. Fulfill your end. He gives reasons. I take refuge in you. If I take refuge in you, why am I rejected? Why do I feel this way? Where is God? Where is my deliverer? Where is my Savior? Which is the third point of the outline. Know your Savior. You see, the psalmist hopes in God whom he calls my salvation over and over again. And this is the, really the last point that I want to get across here. Between suffering and the knowledge of, God, of God's power lies hope. He, the psalmist, and we live between our travail, travails here below, and there are times of tribulation, and our joyous reunion with the saints in the heavenly Mount Zion. But in between those two things lies hope. The Apostle Paul says you are saved in, well, in Christ, yes, but also in hope. You're saved in hope. That's what faith is. Faith is when you see something that's not yet realized. It's believing in the invisible God who you will one day see face to face. Faith and hope are very similar in that regard. Here's what he says in verse 3 of Psalm 43. And I guess verse 4. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill, which in this case is going to be the temple, to enter your dwelling where God is. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with, liar, with a lyre, O God my God. He ends his complaint not with just being grumpy, but just saying, I, basically, I trust you to do this. <laughs> you said you would save me to the utmost. You are my God and my Savior in whom I take refuge. I believe you, so I'm going to believe you. <laughs> so you better do it. That's kind of the thing that's happening here. 
You see, the way to overcome you know, spiritual malaise, spiritual downcastness, or whatever you want to call it, is not so much the elimination of it. Because if you are in real pain, you can't just ignore reality. Like, if you, if you got a bad cut in your arm, you're going to be like, well, I have faith. No, it still hurts. You have to put a bandage on it. It's both. And interestingly in this psalm, the pain that the, that the, in, in, the soul pain of the psalmist is the very means by which he pants for God like a deer pants for fresh water. It's the pain that actually leads him upward, out of, out of himself, out of his ego, and upward to God, like a deer pants for water, for the living God, full living water. The pain of our human condition is that which drives us to God. Most of us try to eliminate this sort of malaise, this discomfort, this unease of life. If we feel sad, you maybe watch Netflix, you I don't drink, whatever it is, you, you, some sort of escapism, play video games, ignore it. But we rarely, ask the, we rarely sit alone for a moment and ask the question, soul, what's the deal? Why are you so downcast? Blaise Pascal once said, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. I said that fast. All of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a, quietly in a room alone. Now, overstatement probably, yeah. But the point is, that ability to be in a room and say, hey, maybe I shouldn't look at my notifications. <laughs> oh, look, Netflix. <laughs> oh, I got an email I gotta do. Hey, maybe I should mow the lawn. The ability just to sit there and say, why, oh my soul, are you so downcast within me? Is a means, not the exclusive, but is a means by which God draws you outward to his power and creation and upward to God and hope. It is that feeling of unease and thirst that makes you seek satiation, that makes you seek a final rest in God. Strive to enter into that rest, Hebrews 4 says. Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. It's not so much that we uh, have no answer to this malaise, but part of the solution is to, and I'm going to say a word and then I'm going to explain the word, is to relativize our unease. Now, when you hear the word relativize, you think it means to ignore. No, 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 no. I'm not saying that. I'm saying you look at your malaise, your uneasiness, your, your, your internal pain and turmoil, and then you look outward at all that God has done in the universe's creation, the whole history of faithfulness in the past from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, and you look at yourself within that kind of cosmic plan of God, and you, and you know, okay, God still has me. Not to ignore it, but to relate it to how great God is. So God, cheesy, is bigger than your problems. Yes, if that helps you to remember. Be cheesy, it's always good. Depth calls to depth. From the highest mountain to the lowest depth, the power of a breaker of a mountain to the deepest ends of space. Again, the James Webb photos that we saw of space just showed us the deep darkness and infinity, or the seeming infinity of space. That's the cathedral of God, if we're going to talk in language 
like John Calvin, or it's, um, or sorry, C.S. Lewis. It's a theater of God if we were going to talk in the language of like John Calvin. I think that was Lewis anyways. But I remember someone saying that. We're to look at this and see our problems in light of all this, in light of God's power. And here's, here's a big point. The psalmist embraces his spiritual malaise and uses it as a fuel to power his pursuit of God. His despair made him like a deer that pants after God like water. See, there's an argument to be made that our malaise or, or natural sadness that most of us feel in life is not something that we should medicate or eradicate, but something that's deep in the human condition that causes us to seek after God. Ignoring, eliminating, or medicating this general sense. I'm not talking about, obviously, there's lots of uh, clinical and biological things, but this general sense of malaise. If we try to eliminate, medicate, or get rid of this, this might be why some of us feel spiritually lame. But the psalmist is anything but. Yes, he feels rejected and burned, but he knows that God exists and that God promises Like, he's demanding that God be God. It is this deep feeling of soul cast-downness that drives him deeper into who God is, and it's a demand that God be God. Don't leave me here. You are who you say you are. You promised salvation. Where are you? This feeling makes us demand, seek after God, make him be who he says he is, or not make him, but hope that he is who he is. Language like light and truth are all throughout the Bible as well. So, send out your light and truth, let them lead me. Psalm 36, 9, for with you is the fountain of life, in your light do we see light. Uh, you have the menorah, candles over the shoe bread of Israel, the priestly rest blessing in number six. Jesus himself says, I am the light, I am the truth, my Father sent me. Uh, his name means, he, Jesus means he saves, his name is saves. <laughs> Jesus is saves, nice. So we have all this kind of language. This is probably why Jesus uses this imagery. I am the light of the world. I am the truth. I am the way. It's going back to all this imagery built up in the Old Testament. And the psalmist seeks, maybe he doesn't fully know consciously, but he seeks for God's light and truth to lead him. This is really what ends up, this is where we end up with the gospel. This is where, where Jesus is. He is the light and the truth that actually leads us. He is that hope beginning to be realized and fully realized at the return. And I think here we get to the heart of everything. The psalmist, yes, looked inward to his soul. He found self-doubt and despair. He looked outward and realized that God is all-powerful. Yet he suffers and God has power and still he remains in pain. So where, where is God? Well, that's why we're saved in hope. Listen to the last words, verse 5. Why, my, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? That's, Psalm 42 said that already a couple times. That didn't go away. He still doesn't feel great. He's still cast down. And yet he says the same thing again. He commands his soul. Hope in God. He gives a reason. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So here's the pattern. There's an inward turn to the soul, a confrontation with the soul. Again, it's not narcissism where you're like, I'm awesome, let's think about me all the time. But it is, why are you in turmoil within me? I don't even understand myself, as Paul actually says. He says, I can't even judge myself, actually. And then it ends with a turn outward and upward to God. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him and my salvation. John Calvin said that wisdom involves knowledge of self and God. And here you see it. 
If the psalmist had ignored his despair, his despair, he would not have been driven to hope like a deer that thirsts after fresh water. Had he given in to despair, he never would have demanded that God be God and save him. It took an outward look to creation and an upward look to God, his hope and his salvation, to make his hope firm. Despair might be at the edges of his vision, turmoil remains, but he doesn't give in. He holds it back until salvation comes. The despair itself is what makes him like a deer that pants for living water, the water of the living God. It is the breakers of God's power that shocks him back to reality, but it is hope in which he stands firm. As Paul says, we are saved in hope even as we live between the time of tribulation and the time of refreshing. All that to say, if I could just say like a couple sentences to end this. These two psalms teach us to look inward to understand why we feel the way that we do. And it's not so much that we can completely eliminate that feeling of unease, but that we can check it and counter it with hope. Hope makes you live strong. And it is this very feeling at the edge of our vision that is that constant thirst and hunger for God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus says. They're going to inherit the earth. That's what the psalm teaches us. We are to look inward to, to understand ourselves, outward to the power of creation, upward to God, so that we might know that we are saved in hope. Jesus Christ, our light, and the truth, the one the Father sent to lead us into salvation is the hope named, and when he returns, it will be realized. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for your kindness and your truth. Thank you that you've given us a prayer book in the Psalms to help us to untwist what is twisted within us, to give us words by the Holy Spirit to draw us to you in hope. Lord, I pray that these Psalms would be a blessing and a help to all of us in the coming days, weeks, months, and forever. Lord, I pray this in your son's name. Amen.